Well, healthy things grow. That's what healthy things do. It's, it's really a law of, of nature is that healthy things grow. Uh, unhealthy things die. That's the opposite. So unhealthy, healthy things grow, unhealthy things die. And when we think about that, we think about how thankful we are for farmers who know how to keep their crops healthy and keep their crops growing. We need farmers to have healthy plants that grow so that we can be healthy people that grow. Without their healthy plants, we wouldn't be healthy people. And I think y'all should be thankful that God called me to be a pastor and not a farmer because if I was a farmer or if all farmers were like me, none of us would have food to eat. I kill every plant I touch. So we're, we're grateful to God that he's got people who understand how to keep plants healthy and plants growing. Churches aren't an exception to this rule of healthy things growing. Churches, when healthy, grow. But how do churches grow? We, we know how plants grow. Even though I can't keep them alive, I know how they grow. Right? It's dirt, it's water, it's sunlight, a little bit of photosynthesis, and boom, you've got a growing plant. But with churches, what is it? How, how does a church work? Well, the Bible teaches us how the church is to grow. And it's by sharing the gospel and training those who believe to obey God and fellowship with him. It's the Great Commission. This is making disciples who make disciples. Healthy churches make disciples. And that's how healthy churches grow. You can find churches growing that aren't healthy. But they're growing in unhealthy ways that they can't sustain. I think healthy things grow, but not all things that grow are healthy. You can find plants that are growing, but are doomed to die because their roots are weak or because the weeds will choke them out eventually. And that's true in churches, isn't it? If a church is only growing because a pastor is dynamic or the music is great or because the programs keep kids interested, that church will not be healthy in the long run. But if a church is growing because the people of the church embrace their commission from Jesus to be disciple makers, then that church will honor Christ and grow for his glory for the long term. And dynamic pastors, great music, great programs, they're not bad, but they can't be the only thing. We have to be in love with Christ, obsessed over him, and desiring that others be as well. Paul wanted the church in Crete to grow. The letter of Titus is Paul's instructions to Titus to help the church in Crete grow. He says, put the church in order, put what remains in order, and in order that church will be healthy, and healthy that church will grow. He's given instructions to how elders should operate. He's given instructions to how mature believers should operate, and we continue to see that today in chapter 3. We're in Titus chapter 3. If you want to look with me, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If we are to make disciples, we have to be on mission with Jesus to seek and save the lost. Here in chapter 3, Paul directs the attention of the church towards their relationship with those who are not Christians. A, a church who ignores non-Christians can't be faithful to the mission of Christ. We have a a sincere and deep focus on discipleship here at Provision Church because we want you to be on mission. God calls pastors to equip the saints, and that's you, church, the saints, those who are believers. He calls pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
And so that's why, church, we preach the word. It's the reason why we study the word together in our life groups it's, and, and in D groups. It's the reason we're doing Bible, Bible 101 tonight at 6 o'clock at the UBA. It's the reason we sing biblical songs. It's the reason for fellowship and the reason we hold each other accountable is because we want to be on mission. We want to grow in our love and enjoyment of Christ. We want to treasure him above all things We do that because God has a purpose for you. And that is to make him known among the nations and among your neighbors. He wants to use you to fill your community and world with all of his fullness. He's he's offered you a chance to participate in his glorious work. And the church is called to consider and have compassion on non-Christians. That's what we're going to see here in Titus 3. Here, here's the instructions for you. Let, let's just look at the, the three verses all together. Here's what God's word says. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I really think this is probably part one of a two-part series. Next week's passage, verses 4 through 11, flow into this. They all flow together. But we're going to look at these three verses. And remember, we're coming out of chapter 2, where if you look back at chapter 2, verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. So he's saying, hey, Church, mature believers, be this way. Bond servants, submit to your masters, be this way because the grace of God has appeared. Do this for the sake of bringing salvation to the world. Bring, do this for the sake of proclaiming Christ. And so here he's saying, remind them, these people who we've called to exhort and rebuke with all authority, Tim, uh, Titus, remind them with this authority to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Christians consider the lost. In this, Christians consider the lost. When Christians live and move in their spheres of influence, they are to live and move in the name of Jesus. Our natural tendency is to live and move in our own desires. (laughs) Our natural tendency is to live and move in our own name. But our call, our, what we are to be reminded of, is to live and move in the name of Christ. So in the name of Christ, it's a blessing and joy to be submissive and obedient as you relate to the government. That's what verse 1 here is speaking of, rulers and authorities. The KJV even talks about magistrates. It, there's clearly all about how we relate to the government here. And we should do so submitting and being obedient as a blessing and a joy. We should be eager to be model citizens, doing what is right and doing it without complaining. And yes, no matter which political party is in charge, Christians shouldn't be known for our hatred or disdain of government or government officials. We should be known for our faithful submission and obedience. And you might get caught You might get called a sheep in the meantime, but hey, that's what the Bible calls us. So, you know, there could be worse things. Does this mean we can't be skeptical 
about our government? No, be skeptical. Does this mean we can't criticize our government? No, be constructive in criticizing. What it does mean is that you have a spirit of kindness and love and, and gratefulness as you are skeptical and critical. Republican Christians should be known for their generous spirit towards Democrats and authority. Democrats should be, Democratic Christians should be known for their generous spirit towards Republicans in authority. And most of the time, church, our relationship with authority is not relationship with those on a national level. That does happen. Most of the time, our relationship with authority are those in our towns and in our counties and maybe even a little bit in our states. But generally, we see the most disdain and division on state and national levels. And in a world that is prone to hyperbole and tribalism, God has already commanded his church to be different. He's already commanded you how you should act as a citizen within a government. He knew 2,000 years ago what our modern culture needs us as a church to be. Americans sometimes, I think, develop notions. I have developed the notion that the most heroic and biblical kind of citizenship is standing up and overthrowing an evil government. But that's not the pattern we find in Scripture. Look at Daniel and how he served his king. Look at Nehemiah and how he served his king. Look at Joseph and how he served his king. Look at even King David and how he served his king who was out to kill him. And these kings that they served weren't necessarily good dudes or a part of godly governments. But when we serve well, when we obey and submit well, we're meant to be light in a dark world. God's call on us is to be light in the darkness. This doesn't mean we do what is evil or disobey God to obey men. That's not the context here. That's not the call here. The call is within context of obedience to Christ first and foremost. Again, looking at the example of Daniel is a great example of that. He, he served his king well, but served his true king better. Within the limits of righteous living towards God, we should submit to rules and authorities, rulers and authorities, and obey them. And part of how we submit and obey is being ready to do every good work. The, the best understanding of government is as a system that provides order to a society. It's appropriate that in a book where Paul is saying, Titus, put things in order, that he would mention how people relate to the government. Crete was a place of disorder. I mean, it was disorderly. So the church was hard to put in order, but also the citizenship. The government was, was not well received by its citizens. There, you could almost think of the Cretans, which already has a connotation, as barbarians. They, they didn't love the government they were under. But if we think of the government as a system that provides order to a society, then we recognize that that's a gift from God. And the best case scenario of this system is that the government protects its citizens from foreign and domestic threats through military and police forces. A useful government also protects its citizens from financial threats by regulating markets, protecting consumers, and protecting intellectual property. We see those things that a good and healthy government do. And within that understanding of government, Christians can serve the government by meeting the needs of their community and building unity. So we're ready for every good work. For us to be ready for every good work in service to God, we should ask questions like, how can we serve our community? 
How can we help those around us? Where are the areas of greatest need? How can I use my resources to bless others? Who is hurting and oppressed around me? A government that desires the peace and prosperity of its citizens will be thankful for the Christians who answer those questions well. How are we answering the questions of what can I do to serve my community? How can I bless those? Where are there great areas of great need? How can I use my resources? A government that desires peace and prosperity will be thankful that we can answer those questions. And here's the truth. Even evil governments want peace and prosperity. They might wage war thinking they're on their way to that. They might hurt and, and, uh, and slaughter their citizens trying to get on the way to peace and prosperity. But that's the, usually the goal of even evil governments because peaceful and prosperous nations are easier to govern. Christian, you should desire that our towns and state and nation would be easier to govern because of your work as a believer. That God uses you to help create peace and prosperity in our nation, in our town. After all, why are our leaders in power? How did they get there? Daniel tells us in Daniel 2 that God changes times and seasons. He's powerful. He's got control of everything. He even changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. It's God who removes and sets up kings. Romans 13 echoes this and even teaches us more. Romans 13 says this, and if you want to take your Bibles and flip over there, we'll be there for a few verses. Romans 13 verse 1 is where we're going to be. Romans 13 verse 1 echoes this uh, instruction, this, this teaching on the fact that God is in control, even of governments. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. <laughs> and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? <laughs> then do what is good. Be ready for every good work. And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, he the government, government the governing authorities, he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. How does any of this, submission to government, respect for authorities, how does any of this mean that Christians consider the lost? How does that correlate? How does that work? Because the world is watching, church, the world is watching how we respond. The world is watching how we respond to our rulers and our authorities. Look, it's natural to rebel. As Christians, we believe this. We believe that we're all rebels. If you're a believer, you believe that at one point you were a rebel against God and that he came to redeem you and make you not a rebel, but instead a child. It's natural for us to rebel and usurp authority. It's easy to complain, and it's easy to gripe. 
It's easy to be argumentative and always look for what's wrong. When we treat those in power with kindness and goodness, it generates curiosity and a living witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a world where when we talk about government authorities, we don't often use the word love and kindness and goodness. (laughs) But what if the church was known for our generosity towards government officials? What if the church was known for our prayerful attitude towards government officials, for our love and goodness towards them? That you couldn't convince a Christian to speak badly of who God has put in authority, like King David. When we are ready for every good work and actually do good works, the people are blessed and take interest in our message. Our communities are blessed when the church obeys God's command to be ready and to do every good work. We shouldn't forget that our government officials are people too. Our government officials need the gospel. They desperately need Jesus for their eternal salvation. How are the people that they are in charge of leading them towards Christ? Or are the Christians in their constituency the ones who are pushing them away from Christ? I wonder how often we could send emails to our senators and congresspeople that instead of our complaints about a policy, instead is a message of encouragement and saying, we're praying for you. How can we help? How refreshing would that be to a politician? What, what kind of cool water would that be? Verse 2 extends this consideration of non-Christians past government and into our treatment of everyone. He tells us to speak evil of no one. Look at that. In verse 2, Titus 3, verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This isn't a command towards just those in power or towards those in the church, but to all people. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Church, love your neighbor. (laughs) That's the call here. Church, love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Yes, Everyone, when Jesus was asked that question, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. He said, look, here, the greatest enemy, the one who is farthest away, that person, every single person you encounter is your neighbor. Be a good one. And how can you be a good neighbor? You can speak evil of no one. Could that be said of you? That I can't get him to speak evil of someone. Avoiding quarreling. Are you a quarrelsome person or are you someone who avoids quarreling? Be a good neighbor. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. We don't always have to be the one in charge, taking command, dominant. We don't have to be that person. We can be gentle. We can be meek and lowly, mimicking our Savior. Be a good neighbor by showing perfect courtesy. Treat everyone with dignity and respect. Treat everyone with value. We don't have to study the meaning of each of these phrases. We can understand this pattern of living. Isn't this a different way of life than the world? Isn't this a different way of life than than what we expect from the powerful and those who have got their lives right? This 
this is a different way. This is the way of the Lamb. This is the way from above. It's the way in which we lay, lay our lives down for others, that we overlook the sin of others because our love for them. This is the way that we follow Jesus' example. And 1 Peter 2.23 says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. He, instead, he avoided quarreling. He spoke evil of no one. He was gentle. He showed perfect courtesy. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered at the hands of evil men, he did not threaten, but continued what? What was his heart? What was his mindset in his living in his day-to-day, as he lived and breathed and moved, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Our interaction with the government and with our neighbors is built on the foundation of the gospel. That God is perfect, we are not, and we need a Savior. Church, if you're a believer, you have that Savior. You have nothing to fear. You have no need for power and authority in your life because the one with all power and all authority already has your life. You get to entrust yourself to him. You get to live in peace with all people as far as it is can be with you. Our call as Christians is to consider the lost in the way that we live. So we live meekly and humbly before the government. We live gently and avoiding quarreling and not speaking of evil of others, even if they might deserve it, because we want their salvation, because we want the glory of God in their lives. We want them to be filled with all the fullness of God. Our call as Christians is to consider the lost. It's also to have compassion for the lost, because Jesus had compassion on us who were once lost. Christians have compassion for the lost. Like in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them because he saw through the facade of their clothing and their jobs and their status and their smiles and their styling, and he saw them as eternal beings made to be with the Father. Jesus saw people for who they are, and he had compassion on them. These people made for a glorious purpose of fellowship with God. I wonder, church, do we see that as a glorious purpose? Does fellowship with God seem like a glorious purpose to us? We've all been, that's that's the design. That's what we've been created for is this glorious purpose of fellowship with God that we get bits and pieces of, we get to taste that in this life with things like God's word and prayer. We get to have some of that and we're made for an eternity of all of that. But instead, these people that Jesus saw were wasting their precious time on temporary things. Do we see people that way? People with an eternal purpose wasting it on temporary things. When we look at people, what do we see? Do we see people who Jesus died for? Do we see people in need of a Savior? Recognizing people's lostness should compel us towards compassion. Recognizing people's lostness should compel us 
towards compassion. Verse 3 teaches us about this. For we ourselves, so hey, we should live this way. We should, we should live submissively and obediently to our government. We should live uh, gently and uh, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quar- quarreling, showing perfect courtesy to everyone. We should live this way, for we ourselves were once foolish. We ourselves were once disobedient. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is who we were. Church, this is who you were. If you are a believer, this is your history. This is your biography. We ourselves, and this is the offense of the gospel. Your sin makes you a bad person. Your sin makes you a bad person. I struggled with whether to say it that way, but I think that's right, and I think you should hear it that way. Your sin makes you a bad person. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the real state of humanity, to our real state, separated from God. That that truth of what our sin does to us the, the darkness and, and the rot that it brings inside of us. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to that. So each of us, before the Holy Spirit, can claim verse 3 as our history and our nature. And even though I was saved as, as just a kid, I can say that verse 3 perfectly described me as a child. I know this for sure because even now, after 25 years of being a Christian, I still experience the Holy Spirit breaking me away from these sinful ways. That's one of the glorious things of, of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit is that he's, he's continually picking out and showing and exposing the sin in my life. And I recognize my nature I was born into, the nature of the flesh that is fullest disobedient, led astray, a slave to various passions and pleasures, passing my days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And it is only by the goodness of the Holy Spirit, it is only by the grace of God that those things are less true today than they were yesterday. But here's the thing. My sin makes me a bad person. Your sin makes you a bad person. Jesus told the rich young ruler that no one is good except God alone. And of course, colloquially, we recognize there are good people, people who are generally, who generally act and do nice things and are easy to be with and who we can trust our kids with, right? I mean, we would generally say, that's, that's a good guy. That, that can only be true superficially. That can only be true on the surface. The whole full truth about a person is that they cannot separate themselves from their sin. You cannot, on your own, separate yourselves from your sin. Not by how well we treat each other, not by how many good things we do. Your sin makes you a bad person. And not because you're mean to your neighbors, but because you have fallen short of the glory of God. If only God is good, your sin makes you not good. Your sin makes you bad. 
You have fallen short of the glory of God, and that is a stain on every person. Every person bears that stain. That sin and that stain in you deserves a consequence. Romans 6.23 teaches us that the consequence of that sin, the wage of sin, is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. God will not just excuse your sin. He won't just sweep it under the rug because he is just. So he made it possible for your sin to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. That stain on every one of us, there's been a a way made for that stain to be washed clean. And it is only by the blood of Jesus. Jesus took your place. Jesus came from heaven lived as a servant, took your place, took the consequence of your sin on his shoulders, and he was able, because he was perfect, he is perfect, and because he is human, because he took on flesh, because he is God. He is able. Jesus wants you to have his life instead of your death. He took your place. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a gracious invitation. Everyone who has been stained and ruined in their sin, everyone whose sin seems too great, it's crushing, I cannot bear this, it cannot be forgiven, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The only way to be saved from sin is by the washing of the Spirit, which is available to us by faith in Jesus as our, as our salvation through his perfect life, his death in our place, and his resurrection. The nature of those who have not surrendered to Jesus is summed up in verse 3. They are foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. To be honest, I, I think this can be offensive, but I'm, I'm not worried about offending you this morning. If you're, if you're not a Christian here, I, I want you to hear these words because first of all, they're not my words. <laughs> I, I didn't invent this today to offend you. This is the word of the living God. And you need to know what he says because whether it's offensive to you or not, it's true. (laughs) Second, if God is working in you, which I believe God works in those who he's calling, drawing to himself. If God is working in you, you already know that what I'm saying is true. You already know that Titus 3.3 is true about you and your nature. You already know that your life has been riddled with foolish decisions and that you are living at the mercy of some passion or pleasure or multiple passions and pleasures, that you can't get control over them. You know the feeling of passing your days on worthless pursuits disguised as meaning. You know the feeling of hatred and being hated. And you know you need salvation from that. Jesus is that salvation from that. As Christians, this 
this information, this knowledge, this truth cannot stir us to feelings of superiority or pity born out of arrogant pride. This cannot stir us to combativeness where it's us versus them. If it does, that's more sinfulness in us. Knowing the true state of the lost must stir us to compassion. It must stir us to compassion like the compassion of Jesus. This is compassion as one who has been pulled from a burning building. I I can look compassionately at someone else as one who has been pulled from a burning building, hoping that my friend might be pulled from the flames as well. There's no arrogance in that. There's no pity in that. There's only compassion. I want for you what's been done for me. Our compassion is framed by a shared history. Look, I know. I know the attraction and burden and pull of sin. I know it well. And any believer you look at in this room can say that too. They know it well. But what glory for me and for you to be drawn out of this life of sin and to be set into this life of eternal purpose. For me and for you to be saved from a life of disobedience and hatred to the loving kindness of our Savior Jesus. How beautiful, church, that you have a Savior who loves you despite yourself only because of how good he is. I'm here today standing before you with the word of God proclaiming salvation from your sin. It's the word of God that teaches us that, proclaiming eternal life in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there is deliverance from sin. In Jesus, there's deliverance from verse 3. But Jesus isn't some beggar just hoping you'll come to him. He isn't wishing for your salvation like a helpless puppy waiting to be picked out of the litter. Jesus is a mighty king and lord. Jesus demands your life. He calls sinners to repentance by faith. He calls out. Jesus won't beg. He already humbled himself for you to the point of death, even death on the cross. No, he he asks for you to recognize your low position and for you to beg him to save you, to recognize your great need, and he will. He will save you gladly. Gladly he will save you because he's good and kind and righteous and loving, and he's made the way. Call on his name and he will save you. If you're already a Christian, hearing this call to salvation should stir your soul. It should stir your soul in gratefulness for your own salvation, for your own love for your Savior. The joy of the gospel creates in us a desire to be filled with all the fullness of God. God, give me more of you. And it draws out our compassion for those who are still waiting to hear and respond to the gospel. I wonder what you'll do with Titus 3 today. Will you live in consideration of non-Christians by the way that you treat the rulers and authorities, by the way that you treat your neighbors and co-workers, 
knowing that they are looking to you as an example of Christ, would you live in compassionate care of non-Christians, always eager and hopeful to see them saved by the grace of God? If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is directing you to make disciples. The Holy Spirit living in you will direct you to obey the Great Commission that we find in Matthew 28. The Holy Spirit will direct you to make disciples. Are you quenching the Spirit or are you embracing Him? The more we quench the Holy Spirit, the more we say no to the Spirit's urging in us, the easier it becomes. I think several times recently when I've tried to share the gospel, I think I can wait. (laughs) I'll wait. Maybe when I come back through, they'll be there. I'll wait. And more and more, I'm becoming convinced that I can't wait. I don't want to quench the Spirit this time because I want the Spirit to keep urging me. I don't want to quench the Spirit this time because I want to be a part of what the Spirit is doing. I I don't want to say no to God this time because I believe in his plan and his purpose, because I want to be filled with all his fullness, and sharing the gospel is a part of that. God will only grow his church, provision church. He will only grow his church if we embrace the spirit and live in gospel consideration and compassion towards others. We can only be a healthy church if we are doing what Paul is instructing to this young church in Crete, to what he's instructing every church for all time, that we live compassionately and considerately of non-Christians, hoping for their salvation in Christ, praying for their salvation in Christ, working for their salvation in Christ. I want to pray for you today. If you're not a Christian and, and you've heard this, and you say, I want to call on, on Jesus. It's that simple. Do it. <laughs> Call on his name. Tell him you want to be his. If you need more to talk through that, I'm going to be at the back. I'd love to talk with you through that. There's Christians all in this room. It may be that you just turn to the neighbor next to you and talk to them. I want to call out to Jesus. I want to be saved. If you're a Christian and you've been quenching the spirit, and I'm thinking right now as I pray would be a great time to repent of that. As we sing would be a great time to surrender to the work of God in your life. Let me pray for you, and, and let's continue to, to worship God this morning. Father, I, I thank you for your word that you teach us that even our relationship with our government matters eternally. That the way we treat others matters eternally. That for us to honor you and to be faithful to your bride, to be faithful as a part of the church, That, God, you've called us to be on mission with you. I pray for a church that takes discipleship seriously because we love you obsessively. I pray for a church that makes disciples with abandon because we love you. Because of what you've done for us, that we have every reason to love you well. That we recognize we deserve death that our life was a life of sin and destruction, that we we were headed for hell. But you and your grace sought us out. God, I thank you for the salvation of those in this room, those who are believers. 
God, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and rising again and making a way where there was no way. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.